Some of you might uh, know that uh, before I came to Charlotte Chapel, I took a keen interest for a little while in Christian radio. And on one occasion, I had a really uh, wonderful opportunity, frightening opportunity as well. I was invited to write and present a series of morning thoughts for Clyde FM, the uh, Glasgow radio station, that wonderful city, you know. But there was, however, just one catch to this. You see, Clyde's thought for the day uh, used to be a couple of minutes long, you know, if you went back to the 70s or 80s. It was later cut back to just a minute in length. And then later still to just 30 seconds. It was actually taken off the air for a while. And then after some pressure, they put it back on. But guess what? They reduced it again. So the slot that I had to fill was 20 seconds. The length of an advert on radio. How do you share the gospel in 20 seconds? In actual fact, a lesson that I learned from that, however, was that anyone who works in the medium of radio, not just Christians, has to deal with that kind of limitation and constriction. Even the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom often only gets a sentence. He just gets a soundbite on the evening news. And it is true of every media. Every form of communication has its limits. Not only modern forms like radio and television, but also the more ancient forms, like preaching. I suppose tonight if I preach for three hours instead of 30 minutes, you might be a little bit discomforted. And also another form, of course, which is more ancient, is letter writing. Because if you write a letter, you certainly have more space to develop your thoughts than on radio. However, you do not have infinite latitude. If your letter cannot be read at a single sitting, it really ceases to be a letter. It becomes a book. Even in this medium, there has to be a certain economy with words. And this clearly is something that the author of the letter of Hebrews We sometimes call it a book, but it was a letter, of course. This is something that he understands. You see, he's already spent a whole 11 chapters declaring the supremacy of Christ over the old way of life, which these Christians from a Jewish background had left behind. And not only so, he's been taking numerous verses in this chapter, giving examples from the Old Testament, To show the excellency of faith, which he is about to apply to Jesus Christ himself in chapter 12. But the problem is this. He is running out of time. And so in verse 32, he comes in with this interjection. What more shall I say? And he departs from this more painstaking formula, which we've been used to. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, Rahab, last week. And instead, now, he begins to summarize, to group, to gather together this section to its conclusion. And yet, we should not think that 
Because this is the end of the section, it's going to be throwaway comment, you know? Actually, a bit like my 20-second slot on radio, when you know you've got to be concise, you choose your words all the more carefully, do you not? So, what is the author keen to emphasize? What carefully chosen words does he have for these Christians at the end of this amazing chapter? Let me suggest two things, and we'll be much longer in the first one than the second one. The first is this. He says there are varying expressions of faith. Varying expressions. Faith, if we may put it in these crude terms, is a most versatile product. It works through all sorts of people, in all sorts of periods of time, and with all sorts of results. Notice the first of these. There is a variety of people in whom faith works, as we see them particularly in verses 32. People who, personality-wise, could not have been any more different from each other. If you know your Old Testament... You know that there's a great mixture here, temperamentally. Why, there was timid Gideon and Barak, afraid to go into battle. There was courageous Samson and Jephthah, sometimes not just courageous, but rash. And then there was stately King David and Samuel, the prophet. I suppose they were more of a mixture. They could lead armies. And they could lead worship and prayer and praise, as well as leading the people of God. You see, there is no stereotypical faith-filled person. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned in one of the sermons, the Myers-Briggs test. Uh, It tries to determine, uh, are you more introvert or extrovert? Intuitive or sensing? uh, Thinking or feeling? judging or perceiving and what happens is you get a letter for each of those and there's actually 16 possible combinations but listen friends God works through every one of them diverse in personality and varying also in morality by which I mean that when you look into the stories they had various moral deficiencies In fact, most of these people are better known for their failures than for their faith. I mean, you might even wonder, how did some of these people make this list? I mean, this is really Gideon, who was slow to take up arms when the Lord asked him to lead Israel against the Midianites, who tested God in Judges 6, rather than believe in his word. Could this actually be Barak? also called by God in Judges 4 to defeat Israel's enemies, but who hesitated in going into battle. In fact, isn't he the guy who needed the girl Deborah to take him by the hand to the battlefield? Or Samson? Could this be the same man, famously strong, but infamously seduced by Delilah in Judges 16? Or Jephthah? He was also a mighty warrior, but wasn't he the guy who made a foolish vow in Judges 11? Which possibly, though we don't know for sure, possibly resulted in the death of his daughter? 
And, and even David, great though he was in so many facets, this was the guy that committed adultery and murder. And how do we know these things? Of course, because God shows them to us in Scripture. He doesn't hide the sins of his people. It's so different from our culture today, isn't it? We're save a few terrible exceptions. We're all pretty good. found something quite amusing in the Waterston's book chart. In the top ten books at the moment, there's a novel called Wicked. And it's a modern retelling of the Wizard of Oz story, when we, which we learned when we were children. And it focuses on the Wicked Witch of the West. Remember her? The premise of the book is that contrary to the traditional story, this wicked witch has actually been misunderstood. You know, when we get to know her in the book, she's really not that wicked at all. Sure, she's got a few issues. But haven't we all? And you get where this is going, don't you? I mean, if the wicked witch of the West isn't wicked, who is? But the biblical truth is quite the opposite. In the sight of a perfect God, all of us have sinned. All of us are wicked. Read Romans 3. That's why, as we've been singing, we need Jesus' death in our place to cleanse us of our sin. And that's why it is good news, wonderful news, that God, by his grace and spirit, might come to live in us, forgiving our failures. And working even through those who continue to fail. You know, we're hearing this week of the American pastor, Ted Haggard, who has apparently disqualified himself from leadership, ministry. And without seeking to minimize his sin, you know, the thought did come to me, actually David and Samson, at least, committed the very same kind of sin as that man did. It's not that God excuses sin, but by his amazing grace, he does often work through people who have failed terribly. And let me suggest, if you don't believe that, then God can't work through any of us. Because we're all terrible failures. Calvin, the great reformer, said it like this. In every saint, there is always found something reprehensible. Nevertheless, although faith may be imperfect and incomplete... It does not cease to be approved by God. You know, that's important for some of us here tonight because we have already ruled ourselves out of the faith race. Ruled ourselves out because we think we failed so badly. And it's not minimizing what we may have done, but I do want to say to you, join the club. These weren't perfect people. It would be a tragedy if you gave up on yourself before God did. God works through a variety of people, personality-wise, morality-wise. There's also something else interesting here, that faith given by God works in a variety of periods too. Periods of time. Again, we need a little bit of biblical uh, background, and you might need to look into some of these stories afterwards. I can't go into them all this evening. But actually the people in this list in verse 32 lived during three distinct periods of Old Testament history. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, 
They lived during the period of the judges. David, Israel's greatest king, represents the period of the monarchy. And Samuel and the prophets, well, they obviously represent the prophetic period. When God's word came to God's people through his spokesman. Now, uh, let me ask you, why does he pick examples from this range of biblical history? Surely one of the reasons is to show that faith works at all times, all periods. This, of course, again, isn't a welcome message today. Uh, If you're a vocal atheist like Richard Dawkins, you might not like this idea that God works even in the 21st century. In his new book, The God Delusion, he makes the assertion that our modern society has evolved beyond God. Belief in God is primitive. And in the 21st century, any thinking person must view faith as anti-intellectual and irrational. Indeed, he actually says in the book's introduction that if he has his way, you will pick up the book a believer and put it down an atheist. See, faith in God just isn't acceptable in our times. And you know, maybe we don't believe the whole gambit, but maybe we buy half the truth of it. Maybe God doesn't work quite the same way today. Maybe 21st century faith does need to be a little more sophisticated, privatized, internalized. And yet if we think that, we deny the truth of God's word. Because across all ages and stages of biblical history, and all ages and stages of church history, faith worked and God worked. It's a wonderful truth. He doesn't just work in the judges' period, or in the king's period, or in the prophet's period, or in the New Testament period, or in the Reformation period, or the Puritans' period, or a hundred years ago, as we were thinking a couple of Sundays ago with the revivals. He's working today. Variety of periods, variety of people producing, and this is very interesting, it might touch a few nerves as well, with a variety of results. As we move from verse 32 quickly down the passage, we notice that faith, as God brings it to bear in us, in his sovereign will, does not always result in the same outcome. And if I could kind of group the results together, you might say on the one hand, in general terms, there are triumphs of deliverance over here. Sometimes the result of our faith is evident victory. Defeating whatever enemy opposes us and opposes God. So, verses 32 to 35a follow this pattern. By faith, Gideon defeated the Midianites. Barak, in the end, routed the Canaanites. Samson, with one mighty push, at the end of his life, killed the Philistines. Samuel, again, routed the Philistines. As did David, with a sling and a stone. And the triumphs continue. Only the actions now, not the people, are mentioned. Some conquer kingdoms. Some administer justice. Others shut the mouth of lions. Quench the fury of the flames. I'm thinking the book of Daniel here, perhaps. Some escaped the edge of the sword. Others routed God's enemies. And then, perhaps most miraculously of all, women received back their dead through faith. What deliverance comes through faith? 
Indeed, we might feel so buoyant at this point. We just need to believe and we'll be delivered in any circumstance and situation, right? And then the shock of the second half of verse 35. Because things then flip on its head. Sometimes there are triumphs of deliverance. Other times, through the same faith, there are triumphs in death. Because others were tortured. Others were mocked and flogged, imprisoned. Stoned to death. Sawn in two. Killed by the sword. Made destitute. This isn't deliverance in any physical sense. But their endurance, says the author, and their testimony is also a result of faith. They died well, if we might put it this way, they died well through faith. They suffered well through faith. Now, just think about that for a moment. Faith works both ways, depending on God's will in our lives. Sometimes he may deliver us. We should pray for that when we're in difficult circumstances. But sometimes in his will that will not be the case. We still need to trust him. Totally opposite to what the health and wealth gospel says today. If you're familiar with that, there's a book you can buy in Christian bookshops just now. It's selling very well. To be frank, I don't recommend it to you. It's by Joel Austin and it's called Your Best Life Now. You can just guess what the content of the book's going to be about. And in his first chapter, Enlarge Your Vision, he writes, quote, I've come to, be ex- to expect to be treated differently. I've learned to expect people to want to help me. My attitude is, I'm a child of the Most High God. My Father created the whole universe. Well, that bit's true. But then he goes on to say, He has crowned me with favor, therefore I can expect preferential treatment. Is that true? One wonders whether... To be blunt, he's reading the New Testament. Because as far as we can tell, as we read Acts, as we read the epistles, the only preferential treatment that Christians get is when they're singled out for suffering. Does God sometimes deliver his people from peril in the book of Acts, for example? Yes, sometimes he does. Does he always do it? No, he doesn't. What God always does is grant his children the faith to trust him, whatever the experience. Don Carson, the biblical scholar, uh, tells a, a very interesting story about a lady in his church who had cancer. Uh, she was right at the hub of things in the church. And news of her illness was a great shock. Uh, she was only middle-aged at the time. And they arranged a prayer meeting for her. Uh, Don was out of town, but his wife, Joy, was able to make it along. And as the meeting progressed, as they were praying and praying and praying, the confidence was rising and rising and rising that this lady would be healed, definitely, without a question. And in the middle of the prayer meeting, Joy, Don's wife, prayed something altogether different to what had been prayed thus far. She said, Lord, 
in your great power, you can heal our sister. And we ask that you might do that. But Lord, if in your sovereign plan, you choose not to deliver her from death, we ask that you strengthen our dear friend to die well. To glorify you even in her suffering and departure. Well, there weren't many amens to that prayer. In fact, the family of this lady really wanted to lynch her at the door. The end of that story, I'll just tell you, several months on, the, the woman's husband phoned up Don Carson in a terrible state, said, I need to chat with you. And since that prayer meeting, his wife's health had been rapidly going downhill. And no one in the family would accept any talk of her death. And the husband said, Don, I need someone to tell me that my wife is dying. That it's okay. That God might will this. Now, don't get me wrong. God could have delivered her. Could have. It wasn't wrong to pray for healing. What was wrong was the view that God never allows suffering. When in fact, sometimes God intends, in ways we can't fully understand, for our suffering to bear witness to our faith and to our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't speak glibly, I don't speak from extensive personal experience, but on the basis of God's word. We need to grasp that God works and faith works in suffering too. And that you're not out of God's plan when you're suffering and it doesn't resolve itself. There are varying expressions of faith. What an encouragement to these Hebrew Christians who were suffering, who were thinking of throwing in the towel, that faith could work even in their lives, even in their times, even in their situations. But notice, as the author comes to his conclusion, another aspect which he emphasizes Balances the variety. There are also some common denominators of faith. You see, there are several things which are true of all the saints in Hebrews chapter 11. And the first is this, that all, all were commended for their faith. These were all, says the writer, verse 39, commended for their faith, commended by God. It's bringing us back, if you recall, Many sermons back to verse 2 at the opening of the chapter where he wrote that this was true of all the saints. This is what the ancients were commended for. And we've seen it in different instances throughout the chapter. Abel, who was commended by God as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And Enoch, who before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. What an amazing truth this is. Our faith actually pleases God. God commends our faith, even though it is a gift from God. Pleases Him. Verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Now, of course, this doesn't make faith a work that we do. Quite the opposite. Faith is trusting in God's work, not our own. Faith is believing in God's word. It's relying on his trustworthy character. And it pleases the Lord. Isn't that something for us to strive for if you're a believer in Christ? His commendation that by faith you persevered and you finished the race. 
I, I was thinking, I don't know why this came to my mind in preparation, but my mind went back to uh, in primary school when I was thinking at the time I might have been something of a runner. And there was a, a cross-country race on a Saturday, and everyone was involved in this, all the schools. and uh, I was talking about this weeks on end with my, my mom and dad, and uh, I went along to the race, but it was much more difficult than I thought. It's easier on the track, but in the cross-country, in the sludge, and the mud, it was so hard. And I got around about halfway, and uh, I was walking by this point. It was near my house, so I thought, you know, I could just walk up the road there, right home. Different finish line. And I still remember, as clear as day, the thought came to me, you know, I've said to my parents that I'm going to finish this. What am I going to do when I come home early and tell them that I dropped out halfway around? Because you see, at that point, their commendation was so, so important to me as a, as a young child. How wonderful is it going to be when we cross the finish line and we see our Father's face and hear His well done? Good and faithful servant. That's something to strive for if we're Christians. And if we are not Christians, of course, it is this faith which brings us to Christ. Which brings us to salvation. Paul said in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's the means. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. See, if you're not really sure where you stand with God this evening, the key question is not, do you come to church? Not have you had some amazing quasi-spiritual experience. But have you placed your faith and trust in Christ alone? As the old acronym used to say, forsaking all I trust him, faith. But notice finally another common denominator here. On the one hand, these saints were all commended. But notice a surprising thing, that none of them received what was promised. These were all commended for their faith, verse 39, yet none of them received what had been promised. Now, this might seem initially strange. Because in Hebrews 11, we know there are people here who receive particular promises from God. Indeed, verse 34 explicitly tells us of those who through faith gained what was promised. So, is this a contradiction in terms? Did they receive the promises or didn't they? Well, in actual fact, the writer here is speaking of a specific promise. A promise greater than any other promise ever made in the whole of human history. We don't get it so clearly in the English, but in the original translation, we read the promise. This is the definitive promise. You see, there was an expectation, an understanding among all of them that God was promising a coming king. A coming Messiah. It had been promised right back from Genesis chapter 3. And all the way through. And the amazing thing, it's really staggering to think about it, is this. That these Old Testament saints exercised their faith in Christ before ever even seeing the Messiah. None of them saw him. And how much more basis then do we have? Eighty. To trust in Him. 
Knowing that God has, in the words of verse 40, provided something better for us. What's the better? That we can look back on the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. We can see not just the shadow, but the fulfillment. We have every reason to believe. We have greater reason to believe. And the question is, and it's resounding through the whole chapter of Hebrews, will we join the ranks of the faithful? That's the question. See, that's the meaning of this beautiful little phrase, I think, at the end of verse 40. So that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What does that mean? Apart from us, not apart from Jesus, not that Christ wasn't important to the Old Testament saints or necessary. But what's he saying here? And I think the meaning is that the Hebrews 11 list, the faith list, is open-ended. There's a sense in which it's deliberately unfinished, as it were. Year on year, more names, more people are joining the list. Entering the race. And in death, completing The number of the faithful. And so, the challenge is simply this. Unbeliever, maybe you come here to Charlotte Chapel, week in, week out, you hear the message, but you never apply it by faith. Tonight, you can embrace faith in Christ. You can join the list. For all eternity, you can receive the commendation of Christ, not because you deserve it, none of us deserve it, but simply because he promises it. Believer, keep going, keep trusting, with your eyes fixed on Jesus, whatever the circumstance, carry on in faith alone. Let's pray.